This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 127, The French Honour and the Failure of Percy. In the winter of 1404, as alliances were being formed and all the paperwork was signed, a move was being made to protect the pretender to the throne of England. Constance Dispenser, wife of the former Earl of Gloucester, the Earl had been killed in 1400 during the Epiphany Revolt in Bristol. She was trying to ensure that the heir apparent, or at least the closest to the line of descent, was safe and was trying to get uh, them from Windsor to northwest Wales and in what she saw as the protection of Glyndor. The Lady Dispenser hated King Henry for the execution of her husband after the failure of the revolt and had hoped to use public agitation over the high taxes that were being borne to fight in so many different wars and basically use her protection of these children as a weapon against the throne and a way to put them on the throne as the new king. The first steps in that was to secretly abscond with Edmund and Roger Mortimer to get them away from Windsor Castle and the imprisonment forced upon them by King Henry. King was no fool. He knew he needed to protect his lineage, and the only way to do that was to keep hold of the Mortimers, who were the direct descendants of Edward III and were actually, and as we'd mentioned before, closer to a line of the throne than Henry himself. But, of course, the former Bolingbroke was uh, a little bit more direct with his swords and was able to win the day when Edmund was just a baby. The fact is, Henry would not kill these young claimants to the throne. He didn't want to be looked at as a child murderer, but neither would he allow them to become the focal point of English rebels, or at least that's the idea when you imprison them in a castle which is under your protection. Constance, of course, had other ideas and moved against Henry to try and ferry the young Edmund to Glyndor. Unfortunately for Dispenser and her followers, and likely Glyndor, the attempt failed as before the group could actually reach Wales. Dispenser was captured in Cheltenham, just 30 miles away from the Welsh March border. Would the English rally around a boy unable to lead? Or would the fight be taken out of them due to not really having a figurehead who could lead it? These are questions that we'll never know as Dispenser was captured, as was her brother Edward, who was imprisoned for a number of years for this treason. And Edmund Mortimer remained surprisingly loyal to Henry, and especially to his son Henry V, who 
he had ended up becoming an advisor to in his council and then eventually looking after his son Henry the sixth you know on the Regency Council after Henry's death Edmund nonetheless didn't really have much say in this whole matter but it does show that the weakness of the allies to Glyndor in their inability to do even the small things necessary to lead this rebellion and as I pointed out the problem for Edmund Mortimer and his followers was that he was still a young boy he wasn't in a position to lead a revolt really what they wanted was Richard II who was long since dead and that's who they had wanted to put on the back on the throne but with him not around it fell to Edmund to become sort of the signal point for the rebels and so they will consistently use his name to try and gain power and regardless of anything else Edmund appears to have found himself in lockstep with the crown regardless of what his family decided or believed in the early part of 1405 the French themselves were busy making war on Rome they wanted to take the papal seat once and for all by putting an end to the papal schism which had created the two and sometimes three popes that were ruling Christianity at least Western Christianity at this point in Europe uh, the fact of the matter remained is that this division which had been creating a lot of the problems during the uh, the hundred years war that continued to roll on into the beginning of the 15th century and with this it continued to be something of an obsession of the French to try and get their men on the throne of the Papal See, or at least the See, to use the more proper term. The French were pushing Italian allies in the Kingdom of Naples to agree to take on these northern Italian forces that were loyal to the Roman Pope, and hopefully by defeating them put their choice on the throne the papal see and within that they were hoping to achieve something slightly a bit more uh, obvious in that they wanted the French one of the members of the French nobility either the Orleanists or someone loyal to the crown to be named as the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire which was a loose confederation of states seen as important if somewhat uh, diverse political alliance in Central Europe in effect this move would be built up around isolating England who was one of the few supporters in Western Europe who still believed in the Roman papacy and they were actually the only supporters left west of Denmark the Holy Roman Empire was basically a construction of uh, Middle medieval idealisms about trying to recreate the Roman Empire but do it under the Christian designation uh, rolled out of Charlemagne originally but effectively it became a German confederation which had the what would then later become the German Republic it had the Austri Austrians uh, the Swiss some in northern Italy on occasion and it was never really a solid political unit there wasn't like a holy roman empire army and there was never quite the unity developed to actually i i guess move in unison against anybody most of the german states themselves had their own armies their own mercenary groups who were involved on all sides of all wars 
Uh, in fact, the Swiss had developed a very strong uh, military force that will come up again during the Hundred Years' War and again and again. Uh, and they are critical to a lot of the story that we see later on. But regardless, it's more a sign of political patronage, I guess, rather than actual domination. And as I said, it would then allow the French to enforce the idea that they're Benedict the Thirteenth, who's the French papal see in Avignon, to wield power in Rome and to be able to unify the Western Christians in support of the French monarchy and of the French ideas, which of course, in part, is to defeat their old enemy, the English. So in the early part of 1405, they spent quite a lot of time doing this. Right up until the summer of 1405, that was pretty much the French obsession. And they spent a great deal of time, effort, money, and material, and eventually men, moving troops to Naples and using basically the southern half of Italy to drive troops towards Rome in order to defeat the Roman papacy. And in fact, Innocent, who was the Pope in Rome at the time, fled Rome and many of his own supporters were beaten up and in some cases murdered as they fled in the chaos that was going on in the city at the time. So consistently, the French were looking at this as kind of a driving force behind their political aggressions. And key to all of this was Wales. Much like Scotland, they were a key force in putting the English into check. Owen, as successful as he had been the last four years, was looking to be someone that they could rely upon and someone they needed in order to make the best of the situation. And with the European power struggle the way it was, having another military and another successful leader kind of in your back pocket and acting as, in a way, on your behalf allows you to kind of take a level of maneuvering and a level of movement that the other side can't really counter because they're too busy dealing with this nation. So those are the reasons why they had supported the Welsh. Those are the reasons why they wanted to continue to do so. And ever since Glyndwr had claimed the crown, they had been attempting to try and unite with him an alliance which would then support them against the English. But in the meantime, Glyndor himself could use the help as he had now run into the problem which is seen as his first major reversal since becoming the focal point of the revolution. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals. 
so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. As we mentioned a couple of episodes ago, in the spring of 1405, King Henry renewed his assault on Wales. He now had the money, men, and importantly, his son back. And with all of that, he could now finally use the current campaigning season, in other words, the spring and summer of 1405, to go after Glyndor to try and force a resolution. At least that was the idea. Likely in May of 1405, the king took forces from Hereford into southern Wales while his son was taking troops into northern Wales, again going along the normal pathways that the king and his son did during this war and much as had happened in the past. Once you have a Roman road, it's a lot easier to ship down there. So that's kind of where they, what they did consistently. And so there was this focal point on these two angles. Now, the funny part of all this is they didn't seem to have enough troops to then hit in the middle as well, which typically is what Edward did. He hit all three points, you know, of Wales. And in the process of that, was able to put a lot of hurt onto the Welsh in a lot of different areas. But Henry just was never able, at least at this stage, to really do that. And in the end, they won a battle at Usk, which the battle itself was not a major one, and the losses on the Welsh side were not particularly high. Unfortunately for Owen and his cause, it did see a number of key casualties. Glyndwr's men were taken by an English force led by Richard of Codnor and Sir John Gradenor, the attack would have far-reaching consequences for Owen's trusted inner circle. First of all, Griffith ap Owain, the son and heir of Glyndor, was captured. Tudor ap Griffith, brother of Owen, was killed. One other notable death was the priest John ap Hewell, or John Powell, known as a rabble-rousing legend by Walter Bower, a Scottish chronicler. He also was killed Adam of Usk says 300 men were beheaded at the battle by Codnor's troops, but some academics call the idea of this into question simply because there's no other evidence other than what Adam says, and Adam was nowhere near the region at the time. Also, along with this, however, they would anger the clergy over this issue and in killing this 
priest, of course, it's something that they're not supposed to be doing, and they do get in trouble for these kind of things occasionally. These incidents of bad luck, however, continued for Owen as his secretary was then captured in May as well, and Owen's brother-in-law, John Hanmer, was also captured in June. This terrible luck would have long-term damage to the Welsh side, but if Henry felt buoyed by these achievements, it would have been short-lived, at least in June of 1405. As the English were invading, news reached the king that another rebellion had broken out in York. The Percys once again were forcing their hand and attacking Henry's right to rule. Richard Scrope, the Archbishop of York, the Earl of Northumberland, Henry Percy, and a number of other northern lords led this rebellion. The rebellion would fall flat on its face almost from the outset, however. Scrope and the Earl of Norfolk, Thomas Mowbray, apparently struck out before their allies were ready, and a number of men were taken captive before they were even really organized. The men were seized by Ralph Neville, the Earl of Westmoreland, who convinced them to treat with him uh, as a way, effectively he lied to them, and then executed them within days, drawing again the ire of the church over the execution of this clergyman. You don't just kill an archbishop in medieval Europe. Percy and his allies were so caught out that few were able to really resist the crown. Percy himself fled to Scotland, and those who did resist were defeated and summarily executed. In the end, the northern and southern allies were unable to hold up their end of the alliance with Glyndor, doing little more than serving as a distraction to allow the French to arrive in Wales before Henry could bring the f his full force to bear against Owen. In fact, we'll see that what seemingly kind of fell over so simply and so quickly was a more coordinated idea. The Percy himself gets convicted in absentia in 1406, and they bring up all of the writing that he'd gone on, all the correspondence he'd had with the king of France, and how intertwined that all was with the Welsh Rebellion. And the fact that it's in June of 1405, as Henry's attacking Wales, seems to show that it's a coordinated movement. And had it succeeded, who knows what would have been the result, or at least had it been slightly more successful than a complete uh, burning house on fire, maybe they might have been able to force Henry's hand. And when we find out what goes on beyond this, it will become obvious that it looked to be that Owen was preparing something in advance of all this. However, the loss of the Percys served as another sign that the high water mark for Owen was likely the winter of 1404. As with Hotspur, the northern lords were unable to coordinate and were dispersed before they were ever able to make headway against Henry, and their general inability to achieve military success leads me to conclude that they were mostly paper tigers facing off against a much better organized and experienced military. Which, of course, speaks highly for Owen, who was able to hold out against and achieve success against this same force from England. With Percy's defeat and the failed kidnapping of Edmund Mortimer, the machinations of the English rebels were over in this period. While this defeat came to the rebels in this period, yet seeds were sown and set in motion for what would then become the War of the Roses later on in a generation to come. 
because much of the sides that were divided in this discussion, in this battlefront between the various parties, are the same sides that will become involved in that chaos later. We've mentioned this somewhat before, but it's good to be reminded that we're kind of moving out of the Welsh Rebellion and we're slowly moving towards what will become the War of the Roses as well as the end of the English control of any state in France. And all of this comes about in part because of Bolingbroke's taking over as king, creating this schism. In July and August, Owen held his second parliament, this time at his base in Harlech. Since the capture of the castle, this had acted as the seat of government in Wales. It was a location which served as a protected area. Obviously, Harlech Castle is a very difficult one to take, and it also served as being useful because it was one of the farthest away defensible points from England. However, with the invitation that was sent out to the Welsh nobility came people who were loyal to Henry and would actually inform the king on what went on in the proceedings in Wales and would be very clear on what the results of all this would be. The spies would inform the king that Owen had help on the way as they were expecting French troops to arrive very soon. Another aspect of this parliament was that Owen was preparing a treaty to offer to Henry. There was, of course, the matter of some sort of prisoner exchange, which I'm sure Owen desired to at the very least get some of his family members back, keeping in mind that his, both his son and his brother-in-law were at the protection, in quotes, of the king. The parliament itself was made up of a sizable portion of Welsh nobility, as four or more persons representing each commote of Wales under Glyndor's control attended. This included, of course, the nobility and also the clergy, but it also included people who were considered to be members of the commons. Very similar, I guess, in a way to the English Parliament of the day, but showing that there was this sense that they needed all three estates to be represented. This sizable representation, of course, showed how far Owen was able to take his power as the Prince of Wales, and also, of course, showed how far he'd come in that process. Meanwhile, in France, trouble was brewing. The French expeditionary force arrived in the late summer of 1405, in fact, just about the time this parliament was ending. As these French forces arrived, a coup attempt was made by the Bourbons against the Orleanists in power, again, this time now trying to stop the attack in Rome at the very least. Jean, Duke of Burgundy, tried to lead this revolt, only to watch some of the most powerful non-aligned families join the Orleanists, and many others remain sternly and firmly neutral. And because of that, his takeover attempt failed utterly. The French forces, of course, arrived oblivious to this, and with them came the final hope for Owen. If they could force Henry to a treaty, if they could defeat him in one battle that might actually put an end to his ability to carry out the war, then, and only then, would they be able to assert Welsh independence for good. But, they had to win that battle, and they had to face Henry on a field likely of his choosing. 
this kind of thing is never going to be easy. And for Owen, knowing all of this didn't necessarily make his life simple. And with the defeat of his erstwhile allies in England, he knew this was his last die to be cast in this war, the last time he could have the advantage. And over the next two years, basically, it is the last great attempt to try and hold on to power in Wales. And with that, thank you for listening. If uh, you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you once again to my Patreon supporters who continue to help me fund this podcast. And thank you once again, and have a great day. Talk to you later. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.